The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show on this Friday, April 22nd, coming to you live from our beautiful studios here at the Center for American Progress. A bit of dimmed lighting here today because I thought, you know what, it's just a nicer experience when we're all sitting here looking, squinting to really see each other. Uh, Glad to be with you. I'm Igor Volsky, Deputy Director of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. And here looking at the week that was and, of course, the week ahead, to me, I started the week out front in the court at the Supreme Court, wasn't in it like my next guest here, but was outside of it. And what a great display for U.S. v. Texas, the court case challenging President Obama's immigration orders. It was a big, big moment for the Latino community and a test for President Obama's actions. Here's Thomas Sainz. He's the Mexican. He's from the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and he was in front of the court representing some of the families, arguing and articulating here very clearly what was was at stake on Monday, what these families were fighting for. It was an honor to represent the three Jane Doe's, very hardworking mothers raising families, including United States citizens in South Texas, and who simply want the opportunity provided by the guidance to step forward and seek discretionary relief that will protect them from the daily threat that they will be removed from their families, that they will be detained and deported. That's all the guidance would provide, and we are hopeful that come June, the president will be able to implement that guidance and provide that relief from daily fear. Thank you. And you'll remember, this is the guidance the president issued after the House never took up the comprehensive immigration bill that passed the Senate. And he said, hey, listen, if Congress isn't going to act, if they're not going to do anything at all, I'm going to use the discretion I have as president to say that certain individuals who've been in the country for a certain period of time, who haven't committed any crimes, who pay back uh, certain taxes, that they, they should not be deported, that the priority of deportation that I'm going to set up. Those folks are going to be at the very, very bottom of it, and then uh, they can work in this country for a period of time. Luis Gutierrez, just one more piece of context here, who's, of course, the congressman from Illinois, was also in the courtroom, and he previewed in front of the cameras how that case went. Today, clearly, they had no argument. The fact is that millions of people live in the United States in the shadows, and they drive. They should drive with driver's licenses and with insurance. The fact is millions of people in the United States work. They should work and pay taxes to the federal government and work under the rules so that they don't undermine American workers 
that aren't immigrants to this country. It just seems to me that this today, clearly, the law was on the side of the people. The President of the United States has taken actions that were clearly established today in the court that Ronald Reagan took, that George Bush took. The only difference today, it was Barack Obama who took those issues. And of course, taking issue with those orders were 25 states and Texas who argued that when you allow these immigrants to have uh, this kind of status, that they would, it would be a burden on these states and arguing more broadly that he was uh, circumventing Congress and creating law and abusing his executive authority. Well, Ian Milheiser is the editor of Think Progress Justice. I suspect he has a different view, and he was in the court on Monday. Is that right? I was. Ian, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Talk to me about um, just broadly how those arguments went. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we saw after um, after they were over a slew of stories saying it might be tied, uh, that uh, the government's lawyers had some really tough questions mm-hmm. coming from them from Chief, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy. Yeah. What's, what was your take? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd start by saying that this is the latest in a series of cases that are really about whether or not Barack Barack Obama is president, Um, you know, as one of the clips that you played um, talked about, you know, Ronald Reagan has done this, both President Bush's have done things similar to this. And, you know, many of the the liberal justices were fl- were almost flabbergasted that we were having this argument. Yeah, and just to back yeah. up, the context here is that Congress doesn't provide the government with enough money to deport right. everybody, right? You cannot deport 11, 12 million undocumented people. And so the argument is that the executive has uh, within its powers right. the ability to prioritize which kinds of people should be deported first. Right. And like the, I think the most important thing to understand about this case is Texas basically basically concedes everything that you just said. So So they agree with that. So Texas does not contest the fact that the president can say that there are broad swaths of immigrants that he isn't going to deport. Um, They do not contest the fact that the executive branch can give them a special card saying, like, you've been identified as one of the people who we don't want to deport, and here's your proof of uh, of that status. Um, Much of the argument, it wasn't even clear what they were arguing about, and, and Justice Kagan spent a lot of time beating them up over that. Um, The bad news for these immigrants is that for most of the argument, the four conservative justices um, did not seem inclined to think that President Obama has the same power that Reagan and the President's Bush have have exercised in the past. I will say, you know, a, a ray of optimism for those folks at the end was that after Kagan spent a good, you know, 10 minutes or so just beating the tar out of the Texas Solicitor General, both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy asked questions, um, two conservative justices asked questions, suggesting that maybe they were a little um, concerned about some of Texas's arguments and maybe the president should have the ability to do this, maybe with a few minor, very minor tweaks. Phone number, by the way, is 8886-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. If you want to be part of the conversation, Ian Milheiser, editor of Think Progress Justice, here in the studio with me. Ian, but what's the argument that Texas is making, Mm -hmm. that because these uh, families are going to have legal status and they're going to be able to apply for certain kinds of documents, that they are then going to be taxing 
Texas's resources, that Texas is going to have to pay for their driver's licenses? So, so that's is that the, the claim? That's the claim they make because in order to get into federal court in the first place, you have to have what's called standing. You have to be, show that you've been injured in some way by the law you're challenging. And so the injury they claim is that they're going to provide these folks with driver's licenses. That costs them money, and so they have standing. There are actual claims. Like the reason they say it's illegal – um, one of their claims is that they they don't disagree that the executive branch can let people remain in the country. They do disagree with regulations which let those folks work while they're in the country, let them potentially earn Social Security and Medicare benefits and, and things like that. Now, it's very clear when you look at federal law that people who the, the term for folks who get this type of status is deferred action. And it's very clear that people... Um, who have deferred action do get those benefits. The other thing that they disagree with is this almost metaphysical disagreement that people, these folks are given, quote, lawful presence is, is the term that's used. And that, I mean, if what Texas is really objecting to is the words, then it's not at all clear that the government just can't call them something else. They can call them, you know, people who we won't deport. They can call them special people. They can call them people with funny hats if they want to. I mean, if, we, if we're really having an argument over what these folks are called, then it's unclear to me why this case needs to be in the Supreme Court. All right. Ian Mielheiser, editor of Think Progress Justice, 888-653-7543, 888-6-LESLIE. If you want to be part of the program, ask Ian about the case, his predictions, and much more coming up right after this break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Continues. I'm Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Joined here in studio by Ian Milheiser. He's the editor of Think Progress Justice. And we're discussing, of course, U.S. v. Texas, the big immigration case in front of the Supreme Court, where uh, the justices will, well, we'll find out in June whether or not they believe that uh, his actions, his deferred action for some immigrants in this country, whether or not it is, in fact, constitutional. Michael from the Bronx on line one. Michael, good afternoon. You're on with Ian. Hi. How are you doing, Ian? Um, I definitely had a call and weigh in because the way Texas and a lot of these southern states have been behaving, but mainly Texas, is a blatant defiance against President Obama and largely due to their racial prejudice. Because the thing is, the immigration thing, that is just a small aspect. Um, Texas, uh, I should say Texas officials, do not want to comply with federal rules, federal laws, federal guidelines, as long as Obama is in office. For so long we've been hearing that they even want to separate themselves from the union so they can do everything their way. Yeah, good good point, Michael. Yeah, thank you. Ian, how much is this a fight against Obama? Yeah, I mean, this is part of a fairly comprehensive fight 
you know, that is being waged in the judiciary to undo the Obama presidency. I mean, this is part and parcel with the I don't know how many lawsuits we've now had challenging the Affordable Care oh, Act. Oh, don't remind me. Yeah. Ian. No, we, 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 Send me into a depression. Yeah, we, we, we both have PTSD after all of that. We um, really do. I, yeah. you know, I have to say, I was at the court on Monday, and I did feel like, because it was one of those days where you just saw so much energy and so much excitement, like you did around Obamacare. Yep. And I thought to myself, oh, just to live through this again. And again, also an instance here, as Michael correctly points out, where it's an Obama initiative and it's Obama law. Right. And because these guys can't win at the ballot box, they try to do it through the courts. Dave from Springfield, Massachusetts, on line two. Dave, you're on with Ian Milheiser, editor of Think Progress Justice. Uh, Mr. Anheuser? Milheiser. Uh, what is it? Anheuser? He'll, he'll take that, too. Uh, Go ahead, Dave. Everyone likes a good beer. Okay, I want to, uh, concerning the issue of uh, the Mexicans coming to the United States as immigrants, whether legal or illegal aliens entering the country, here is the big issue that's been neglected by the everyday press. The culture of Mexico has always been backward. Okay, Dave, get off. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Take them off. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know what to say about this. You know, I, I will note that this is a, a legal case and this is not <laughs> a, point. you know, this is not a case about how much the Supreme Court approves of the Mexican culture or anyone else's culture. And the law, like I said, is pretty clear that the president has the power to do this. And this also hits at this point that there's not really, as you pointed out, a really strong legal argument right. against this, given all the precedent of past presidents right. doing this. The, the, I guess it also speaks to I was at the court, you were inside of it, so I don't even know if you noticed, but along with all of the um, immigration advocates who were there in full force, just mm-hmm. really hundreds of people, we saw maybe five, ten Tea Party advocates who were trying to make their case, and all they said was that if you allow this to go forward, mm-hmm. then it w- will uh, somehow lead to this great dictatorship in this right. country, that this is just more about the Obama agenda and really right. uh, circumventing voters and, and pushing it down your throat. Again, not legal arguments, not right. legal claims, but all about being against the president. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings about what this case is about, because, I mean, it's a fair point that we don't want the president to just wave his hand and decide what all the law is going to be. What's important to understand about this case is, first of all, in the immigration context, there is a long tradition in um, of the president having broad authority. The Congress has given him very broad, broad authority. Um, in this case, Congress hasn't appropriated nearly enough money to deport all of the undocumented people in the country, if, if even if he wanted to, so he has to pick and choose, you know, priorities um, in in that space. And then on top of that, um, when you look at like when you get down to the weeds and look at like what Texas is complaining about, like can these people work in the country? And I can point to a place in the federal law where it says yes. You're the, pointing. You're really pointing. I really right am now. pointing. I'm know. waving my finger around. Yeah. I'm, I'm going nuts. But, you know, it says right there that, yes, the Depar- the Secretary of Homeland Security has the power to let them work. Yes, it says that the Secretary has the power to let them become eligible for Social Security benefits. So if this is a legal case, 
and not a philosophical argument about who we want to be president and what we want the president's powers to be, the answer is very clear that the Supreme Court should just follow what the law says, and it says that the president can do this. And the other question is, if you disagree with this kind of prioritization that says that people who have been here for at least five years right. with strong roots in this country, that they should not be deported, then who and how would you prioritize right. this deportation? If it has to be prioritized in some way because it's highly inefficient and right. I think we'd all agree dumb to just go randomly through the country and deporting people that you need some kind of system, you need some kind of process. How do Republicans, how do conservatives talk about then prioritizing this if it's not about leaving families intact and leaving families right. who, who contribute to this country in this country? Well, I think think that honestly like they don't want to talk openly about how this works because once you start having a conversation about the fact that there have to be priorities i mean there's priorities in any kind of law enforcement. You, you know, when John Ashcroft came in as attorney general, he decided to shift resources away from the counterterrorism counter division in the Justice Department and the FBI. And then 9-11 happened and those resources got shifted back because all of a sudden it was really clear that we needed people there. And if you're shifting your resources towards counterterrorism, that means there's all kinds of other crimes that didn't get prosecuted. But I mean, that's, that's the way of the world. There's, a, right, there's limited resources right. here. Yeah. 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 And, you know, so it is in immigration. You know, you, you can choose to deport criminals or you can choose to deport the parents of citizens. And, you, you know, if you want to argue with President Obama because he thinks that it's more important to deport criminals than it is to deport, you know, a mother who's trying to raise their U.S. citizen child, then, you know, let's have that argument. But that is essentially what the people who are opposed to this this broad policy are claiming. All right, let's go back to the phones at 888-653-7543. Teresa, line one, very quick, quickly, you're on with Ian. Hi, I'm really glad you're having this conversation. I think it's most constructive. And I'd like to hear more about um, ideas about what we can do to help Mexico overcome their economic problems so that we don't have this um, economic flow of immigrants. And also, I think that we need to accept that we need to help them do that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, sir. I just got, got, to, got to go to Ian because we we're up against the heartbreak. Ian, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's going to be hard to solve uh, international development questions in, in 15 <laughs> seconds. I, I, I will say, though, that, like, I mean, a huge amount of, you know, the reason why people want to come to this country is so that they can help their families at home. And so this actually... Is Ian Milheiser, got to cut you off, editor of Think Progress Justice. Uh, we'll be back. Leslie Marshall Show. Stay with us. Thirty-two minutes after the hour of the Leslie Marshall Show on this Friday, April 22nd. I'm Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund, sitting in for Leslie. As we switch gears here from the big immigration case in front of the Supreme Court to the big, well, I don't know how big, it's actually fairly small, 
but to a, uh, a, a a college in the United States that may shock you a bit, that may surprise you because you don't hear too much about it, and, and it's really kind of just getting started. It's the first accredited Muslim college in America, Zaytuna. 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 Tuna. But tuna, you say tuna? Tuna. Like, Zaytuna. Zaytuna. Like Zay and then tuna. Zaytuna College. And the other voice you hear there is Jack Jenkins. He's the senior religion reporter over at the in the Center for American Progress over at Think Progress, and he joins me now in studio. His piece, What It's Like to Attend America's First Accredited Muslim College over at thinkprogress.org. Jack, you spent a week, yes, a mm-hmm. week over at Zaytuna. Yeah. Zaytuna. Zaytuna. Zay, what does the name mean? Let's start there. It's, uh, it, it's, it, it references a tree. <laughs> but there's a whole story behind it. But the, the the name itself and the symbolism behind it. Actually, if you go to the the college, um, which is located in Berkeley, um, just above UC Berkeley, it's on what's called Holy Hill, which is a combination of different um, seminaries and religious schools. And they uh, they Zaytuna College is housed within a church. And so their sign and their logo is actually just wrapped around an old church sign um, out front. And you still see vestiges of the church as you're when you're in the facility. Right. They they still have old church signs. Um, they retrofitted the the sanctuary into a lecture hall, but it still has inflections of like um, different crosses. And they and they basically said that they they want to leave it that way. They don't need to hide what the church used to be. They just need to make space for the students and in their ability to you know go to class and learn. By the way, eight 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 six five three seventy five forty three eight 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 six Leslie. If you want to be part of the conversation and try to pronounce a tuna college. Be my <laughs> guess. A small school, yes, that's been around in different forms, but has um, kind of uh, now uh, positioning itself at least to become a center of Muslim learning and Muslim thought and a place that kind of interacts with the modern world, not what you think of kind of traditionally or at least the media perception of Muslim schools that only focus on very deep religious studies. Right. I mean, they're actually using an older American collegiate model um, that in some ways is, 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 you know, the foundation for a lot of the schools we know as like the Ivy League, so Harvard University, that sort of thing, um, in terms of embracing the liberal arts. But like a bunch of religiously affiliated little liberal arts schools around the country. That's like Wheaton College and Gonzaga, you know, those sorts of schools where they pair um, usually Christianity um, or Judaism with these, this uh, comprehension of the liberal arts. Um, that just hadn't been done with Islam in the United States. And these scholars who have been, you know, they're really renowned Muslim scholars in the United States figured, why don't we set up our own school of learning? And they actually began as an institute, then became a seminary for a while, and then about five years ago they said, no, we can do this as a college. If Wheaton can do it, we can do it. And they really have set up something where kids get an education where they do have to learn the Quran, they do have to learn traditional Arabic, but they're also learning about Plato and Aristotle and like talking about Greek philosophy and learning about American rhetoric and constitutional law, all as part of their curriculum. 
why hasn't this been done before? Why now? Have there been attempts and they failed? I mean, we have, I don't know what the Muslim American population is, but in the millions, I'm, I'm assuming, why, uh, why are we just now seeing this kind of model pop up? It's a good question, and I think the, the timing of it is interesting given that it became, you know, it was founded as an institute in the 90s, but it decided to become a college, you know, in, in the 2000s, the late 2000s, um, you know, late uh, 2009, 2010 is when it really kind of got kicked off. And I mean, that's that's in the wake of all of this Islamophobia. And you got to remember, Islam in general has multi, multiple different factions. It has different permutations. There's you know, Sunni and Shia and Sufi. And um, and they, those communities often operate differently. So you would be you know in California or Florida, and there'd be these small little pockets, none of which were large enough to probably support this university. But maybe, and this is one of the things that came through in, in you know I, when I was reporting, these communities have found a lot more solidarity with each other because of this rise of Islamophobia recently, and that certainly helps you know build solidarity and financial solidarity enough to now that's, support that's this. That's fascinating that the. Islamophobia that we've seen maybe spike after the president was elected and you had all these claims that he was a secret Muslim, yada, yada, yada. And certainly now with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. that those attacks aren't, you know, yes, in some in some sense and in many instances, in fact, across the country, they're driving uh, hate crimes and hate speech mm-hmm. against the Muslim community. But they're also maybe at least contributing to this impact of creating solidarity amongst Muslims and maybe awakening within Muslim Americans who maybe put the American before the Muslim that they're kind of all in this together. Yeah. Tell me about some of the students who you met at the school and, and how they deal with uh, being a Muslim American, going to this first accredited Muslim college and doing so in the context of this presidential election where the G- GOP frontrunner says he wants to ban Muslims from entering the United States. Right. Well, first of all, I'll note that, that all of these kids were smarter than I was if, if, when I was a freshman well, in college. Well, that's not hard. Like, these, these, <laughs> they're, they're, they're a really bright group of kids. Um, and I think what's interesting is for a lot of them, when I would talk to them about Islamophobia, in some ways, because they're in the, the the liberal bubble that is Berkeley and you know um, Northern California and the Bay Area, they don't experience Islamophobia in the same way you might if you were in you know uh, different parts of rural America. So they're or, insulated. They're insulated a little bit. However, they have to. They're required to go do these field studies. They're required to go um, do volunteer hours around either nearby or in other parts of the country. And they gave me some anecdotes about how they, they had encountered Islamophobia there and. No matter what, they're all painfully aware that when they leave, when they graduate, they're going to interact in places where they're going to be the only Muslim in one one office. You know, they're going to be the only Muslim you know lawyer at this one firm. And what they told me is, in addition to obviously advocacy and you know doing you know standing up for Muslim rights across the country, for them the best way they can combat Islamophobia is to be really, really great at whatever it is they end up doing. So one of the women I spoke with who identifies as a feminist, um, you know, and she's doing all this work on, you know, consent within Islamic law, um, she wants to go be a lawyer, and she says, you know, the best way I can combat Islamophobia is go be a fantastic lawyer. And you get that over and over and over again. It's really dedication to their their learning and how that can combat um, hatred on its own. Jack Jenkins, senior religion reporter for Think Progress, uh, joins me in studio. I'm Igor Volsky, sitting in for Leslie Marshall. Jack, but that the burden, the burden of having to do that 
is to me astounding. You know, it's something a lot of gay people feel that mm-hmm. they become class presidents and they rise up uh, mightily in their fields because they are trying to prove themselves to society, to their parents, to whoever. You're pointing to a similar trend. In some instances, and I guess in, in a way of thinking, just very unfair that the way you are going to combat or they're going to combat this Islamophobia is for them to be better, not for the Islamophobe, Islamophobes to really, you know, kind of step up and, and open their minds. Yeah, I, I, there seemed to be a deep level of cynicism about that there's just not a whole lot of expectation, particularly in the rise of someone of like Donald Trump, who's getting votes off of being Islamophobic, um, that they don't think Islamophobia is just going to magically go away. So they, they don't have a whole lot of faith, at least when I spoke with them, that, um, that, that Islamophobia would just vanish from American existence. Like, no matter what, and they said they expressed frustration with being burdened with the, the task of trying to combat it, they don't think it's going to go away on its own. Um, and I do think that's a classic story of like whenever you you encounter um, oppression in a society that you more is asked of you and it really shouldn't be. Um, but they seem really up to the challenge. Eight 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 six five three seventy five forty three eight 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 six. Leslie, if you want to be part of the conversation, my guest Jack Jenkins. He's going to sit tight to the other side of the break as we continue to discuss Zaytuna College, the first accredited Muslim college in the United States. I'm Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. Eight 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 six Leslie. of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Back here with Jack Jenkins. He's the senior religion reporter over at Think Progress. Uh, Jack, one of the factors uh, in this election, to some degree, has been Pope Francis, who, of course, uh, was a very, uh, very big factor, uh, at least to some degree, in uh, getting John Boehner to retire, who, of course, announced famously after that encounter, after the Pope spoke to Congress and and came to D.C., that, oh, now I am done. I can leave. (laughs) And he did. And now we have Paul Ryan. And there has been, you know, ever since he uh, was selected, uh, politicians just tripping over themselves to try and embrace the Pope, such a popular, such a popular figure um, in many respects. Well, Bernie Sanders, Mm -hmm. who uh, spent uh, a lot of time praising the Pope and saying that he's such a beautiful man and he really represents the message that Bernie, too, is carrying, one of social justice, one, one of income inequality. Bernie got his chance to have a short meeting with the Pope uh, when he attended. What was it? The, the conference on the family? Was it? No. It, it was. It was a, 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 the Pontifical Academy of Sciences had a conference, and they and he he was 
depending on who you talk to, if he invited himself or was formally invited by the Academy themselves to the conference at the Vatican. And there was initially some question about whether or not he'll get to meet with the Pope, right. some uncertainty. He did, uh, and of course the campaign tried to kind of highlight this ahead of the New York primary, and uh, uh, they thought that maybe it would provide some kind of boost, just rubbing elbows with the pontiff. Not the case at all. It no. did not matter. Why do you think that is? Um, I think you know, part of it is, you know, you could, from a campaign perspective, you can just say that the, the Sanders campaign didn't handle it particularly well. I mean, he did get to Rome. He did actually meet the Pope. The details of that exchange were not released. It was, you know, apparently, uh, according to, on, from the Pope's people, it was just only a meeting because of manners, not because of any strong desire to meet with him. Um, and so it looked, you know, the the story that came out of that encounter made it look like Sanders was just desperately trying to get the Pope to hang out with him. Um, <laughs> and he, he delivered a speech that was there that was like, I mean, it's true. I mean, Sanders has been quoting Pope Francis consistently throughout this campaign. When he spoke at um, Liberty University, he, he quoted um, uh, Francis verbatim. You know, like he, he clearly is a big fan of the Pope. And they do. I mean, the philosophies are very similar, Absolutely. right, to be fair. I mean, this isn't, so this isn't to say that he's really kind of just cynically using the Pope for political gain. No. He has throughout his career really espoused a lot of those values that the Pope talks about. Absolutely. There's there's clearly like solidarity in, in, the, in the movement that they both want to represent. However, in terms of winning over voters in New York, um, the outcome was actually that Catholics in New York were disproportionately more supportive of Hillary in that primary than they than they are in other states. Huh. So it's unclear if 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 Sanders just didn't pull it off. Um, there's there's a lot of reasons to think that there might be just raw um, like demographic reasons why that might be the case. I mean, clearly a lot of groups disproportionately supported Hillary in that <laughs> in that primary, um, given how strong her win was. Um, but you know, at best, it seems to have had no effect. And at worst, it might have actually cost him something. And, you know, you can do a lot of uh, reasoning to figure out why that might be. But one is just simply that cozying up to the Pope, particularly in this election on the liberal side, might not actually win you that many votes. Because now, he has a lot of conservative shades to him that liberals yes. really don't like. Now, interestingly, on the other side of the aisle, if you recall, a few months ago, uh, the Pope and Donald Trump got into a spat. When um, Donald Trump accused, uh, or you, after Donald Trump talked about erecting a wall between um, a giant wall between uh, Mexico and the United States, you know, Pope Francis actually went and visited the border. And then on his way back, someone asked him about Donald Trump, and he said, "If someone really believes that, then they're not a Christian." Oh, I'd and forgotten the, that. The That's right. The thing was that Donald Trump wasn't a Christian, and so this this is a whole thing. And I I wrote about it too. That you know the, the presumption is that. Um, this could hurt Donald Trump. And I think it probably still could in the general election in terms of like you don't want to be on the bad side of the Pope publicly like Trump was. But in the primary, they just the poll just came out in the last week or so that Trump's actually support among conservative Catholics has actually gone up um, since his spat with the Pope. And it's not clear why, but it, it does – it does encapsulate the division in American Catholicism and how strongly different um, progressive Catholics and, cons and conservative Catholics are, particularly in how they view Pope Francis. 
888-653-7543, 888-6-LESLIE, if you want to talk to Jack Jenkins, senior politi- political, hmm, senior religion reporter <laughs> for Think Progress, thinkprogress.org. How common is that, the Pope in some ways inserting himself into an American presidential election? I mean, maybe he, out of courtesy, met with Bernie Sanders, but mm. he made those comments about Trump knowing full well that they would be interpreted in a certain way and that they could at least influence in some respects the American election. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll have analysts that say that Pope Francis, you know, didn't know who Trump was, that he wasn't fully aware of the American political dynamic, that he really, he's a 10,000 foot view. I don't buy that. I, I believe the Pope, as many people have said, is deeply political. He has said that to be a good Catholic is to be political. Um, and so you have this dynamic where Pope Francis doesn't want to you know, tell someone how to vote, but he certainly want to tell us. Um, he kind of does. Yeah, well, he wants to tell you what the important issues are and what ah, a good Catholic yes. might pursue. And so he, you know, walking that line has kind of been the thing of his papacy. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because under the previous pope, um, Benedict, people would, you know, conservatives now say that Francis is far too political. Compared to Benedict, Benedict was also deeply political, but on issues that conservatives tended to agree with, as opposed to Francis, whose main bread and butter are issues that line up more closely with Bernie Sanders than they do with Donald Trump. And that might explain a lot of how you know, this this breakdown of why it probably didn't help Sanders that much in the the, um, the Democratic primary because most of those people already agree with Pope Francis to begin with. Mm. Um, so long story short, you know, the way I look at it is Pope Francis is going to keep being political as long as he can. And from his perspective, this is the seat of power. And there's a reason that when he came here, he gave an address to Congress in which two of his main focuses were, um, were uh, three were immigration, climate change, and economics and progressive economics, really, because he wouldn't do that if he didn't think that it's something that we needed to hear. And, of course, issues where Republicans, who are the first to claim about how moral and religious and conservative <laughs> they are, are in great disagreement with the Pope. You know, it has struck me just generally his approach at achieving change, uh, change within the church, social change, has been one of great incrementalism. And uh, for some on the left, uh, it's created some anxiety, some tension, some regret. Why isn't he doing more? You know, the, uh, I guess, what was it, the the recent uh, statements that came out about the family that Mm -hmm. were a result of all those meetings about the family, and pardon my not knowing this terminology, but uh, there wasn't this very strong um, sense of great change when it comes to uh, gays, when it comes yep. to divorce, but there were nudges in that direction. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's that's an effective way of going about and creating change? Why isn't he kind of stronger, bolder on a lot of these issues? Because it certainly feels like, at least when you look at him, when you hear him, you'd like to think that he's there with you, but he's just, he gets there, but he doesn't go quite far enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the easy answer and the one that most Catholic scholars will give you is that change happens in the Catholic Church over the course of centuries, not over the course of months or individual years. And so incrementalism is all, has been the name of the game for quite some time. However, you have moments of great change. You know, Vatican II in the mid-20th century was something that ushered in, arguably it was incrementalist as well, but it, it did a lot of – there were several increments all at once. And Pope Francis – 
I think if you looked at it from that perspective, he the, the fact that he had these conversations about the family to begin with, the fact that he wanted to address it, the fact that he brought up homosexuality repeatedly, the fact that he, while he, people say that the one section of that statement he released recently about the families, when he talked about LGBT issues, that section actually felt like he didn't write it, like it, like the language itself felt like it was inserted. Mm. Um, but even then, it was a softer tone than Benedict would have would have um, had on the exact same issue. So there were some things he changed. He's, he's changed some stuff about annulments. He's changed or, or, or allowed for some new pathways for, so that you could possibly get um, communion if you've been divorced and remarried. But at the end of the day, Pope Francis is someone who wants to play the ball a thousand years away from playing here. Playing the long game. He's playing the really, really long game. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Catholicism 101 for you because at the end of the day, you know, we can't. We can't predict what's going to happen in the next 50 years. Jack Jenkins, senior religion reporter for Think Progress, thinkprogress.org. Thank you so much. Always such great insight. His piece, by the way, on that first Muslim college, what it's like to attend America's first accredited Muslim college over at Think Progress. I'm Igor Volsky in for Leslie Marshall on this Friday, April 22nd. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more show. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Sitting in for Leslie Marshall on this Friday, April 22nd, reviewing the week that was and the week in politics that will be. My God, if anything created a sea change this week, it was, of course, the New York primary with the road much, much harder now for Bernie Sanders to unseat Hillary Clinton as the Democratic frontrunner. But can he? Will he? And what will he do next? Well, joining me now on the phone, Michael Schur. He's a former Al Jazeera America reporter and a political analyst. Michael, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. How are you, Igor? Nice to, uh, nice to actually be doing radio that Peter Ogburn has absolutely nothing to do with. Oh, it that feels so good. You have no idea how good it feels. I'll pass that along to him. I agree. Yeah, no, no. I, I'm, I will text him right after this. Yeah, yeah. I'll text him as you speak. I mean, there, he, he can know this not soon enough. Michael... <laughs> <laughs> Look, what do we? What's going on here? It feels to me Bernie Sanders uh, really had a bad night on Tuesday. He couldn't take Hillary Clinton down. Now there's no mathematical way for him to become the party's nominee. Why is he out in Pennsylvania trashing Hillary in the same way that he did before this contest? I mean, isn't he just helping the Republicans at this point? You would think so. I think that there's a little bit of bitterness. I think there are also the, the, the however many stages there are of, of grieving, and I think he must be in one of them now. I, I, listen, I, he was able to get a lot of people excited about politics, and it was a rough week for all of them. And I think, you know, he when he went up after uh, after New York, he went up to Vermont, uh, Igor, and he, he, he sort of thought that, listen, I'm going to recharge. And, and a lot of people were either expecting him to come out and start being a little nicer than he had been, but I think that he's also a little ticked off at the fact that Hillary Clinton's now ignoring him. 
they have not focused very much of their campaigning, if any, on, on Bernie Sanders. They have been for quite a while. So it, the way they look at it is that they owe their supporters uh, the same uh, kind of energy in Pennsylvania as they've been giving since Iowa. But by the same token, they also feel that there is a chance that superdelegates can decide this. And they feel that they're a little upset about the way the Clinton people have handled this also since New York. And Jen Palmieri, who is a spokesperson for that campaign afterwards, said, you know, talked talk in sort of unkind ways about Bernie Sanders. I think that upset the campaign. But if he plays this smart, though, don't you think if he kind of takes a page out of Hillary's playbook uh, in 2008 after it was clear Obama's going to be the nominee, if if he unites the party, if he says, hey, look, if the choice is between Hillary and if the choice is between Trump, you guys have to vote for Hillary. She believes many of the ideals and values that I do. If he plays this smart, he could he could have a lot of sway. Can he not on on her, um, certainly at the convention, but then if she's elected, on on policy? Yeah, you would think so. It really, you know, I I think it was more defined what Hillary Clinton wanted in 2008 at a certain point than what um, than what he wants. I mean, do you think, uh, do you I, think I he has? Do you think he has an ask here? I mean, do you think he can go into this and and say, Hillary, when you know, whenever they have their their meeting, one on one meeting, which you know is coming, uh, yeah. is it going to be? Do you think it's going to be a situation where they're going to be sitting across a table and uh, he's going to say, here's what I want you to do. I want to make sure that in your, um, for instance, your economic agenda, that there's a certain focus on inequality. I want to make sure that you don't bring back the old Bill Clinton economic advisors. Um, I want to, you know, kind of maybe provide you a list with with who are the kind of people you should be working with. What can he legitimately ask for that she can then promise him? Well, I think I think it starts with personnel. I think that some of the things that the that the Sanders people and, and Bernie Sanders himself can talk about is the kind of people that would be in a. And first, a Clinton general campaign, and then after that, a Clinton White House. And, but I do think that there is a little bit of that. I think that he wants to make sure that the message that he was able to take to the people, he could then afterwards go to them and say, hey, listen, I sat down with Hillary Clinton. This is what I was promised. And that holds her feet to the fire through the convention and beyond. And, and of course, into if she were to be elected president, because then these are then voters that she has promised indirectly uh, some things to. And I, I think the Sanders people, to be honest right now, are trying to figure out what that ask is. I don't think they really know. Hillary Clinton knew that when she was stepping aside for Barack Obama that she may have even thought that Barack Obama couldn't win in 2008. And if he did win in 2008, uh, she would you know, be along for the ride, as she was. So there was a much more specific role that she could have played. Bernie Sanders, uh, as a senator who has been great on on message but sort of you know has not been a leader in the senate may want to make this his leadership time to say i'm going to get some things done with with an incoming nominee and perhaps an incoming president that i'm not able to do in the senate right now because of the minority position so i think he's trying to figure that out but for bernie sanders it, it has to happen soon because the uglier this gets or if it stays ugly for a while certainly past tuesday next week when there are a bunch of contests then then he starts looking bad and then it, it really puts the the, the democrat
Democrats into a place that they did not want to be. They want the Republicans to be the party in disarray this time. 888-653-7543, 888-6-LESLIE, if you want to talk to Michael Schur, former Al Jazeera America reporter. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you're right. I think the question, though, is will he do it? Will he be able to kind of, you know, swallow hard as you do at moments like this and say, hey, I've had a remarkable run here. I've really changed and influenced the conversation. I have in many respects pushed Hillary Clinton to the left. She um, certainly is now against the TPP, for instance. She talks about income inequality in a way that uh, that she hasn't in the past. This is what I've accomplished. This is tremendous. But let me ask you this, Michael. This is kind of the flip side here of what now Hillary has to do in order to consolidate and pull in some of those Sanders voters. It feels that her biggest vulnerability here, her biggest problem, are young voters who went for Bernie through overwhelming margins in state after state and race after race. Why aren't they um, looking at her? She says, you know, I'm for you, even though you may not be for me. But what will it take for those voters to come uh, and support Hillary? I mean, maybe they ultimately will when it's only Hillary or Trump. But why do you think she's failed thus far? Well, an opponent like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Quite frankly, just about anyone that the Republicans throw out there will help with that message. It's hard to put yourself in the context of these young voters supporting Hillary right now when they have so they've been so decided upon Bernie Sanders and his message that they you can't even picture what it's going to be like. But there's going to be a general election. If she is the nominee, she is going to be going up against somebody who is so you know, against everything that these people believe. Uh, you know, the, the other thing to remember, and not to discount the import of, of, of these young voters, for example, in New York the other day, the, the Sanders won 78%, I think, and I might be, it may have been 70%, but I think it 78% of voters that were between 18 and 24. Those were 8% of the voters that voted that day. So you're not talking about a huge swath of voters right now. And so if you're able to peel off a number of them, as I imagine she will, it'll be uh, an important thing for, for Clinton. But, you know, your question is, how do you get any of them out? How do you get any of them excited? Well, I think that they're going to have to hear that from Bernie, and they're also going to be motivated by what the opposition is. What the, you know, I think the Democrats are going to play up the Supreme Court in ways that they never have as a general election issue. I think that's going to sort of galvanize some of these young people behind her. And I also think that, you know, as, as the, you mentioned it, Igor, but the, there's never really been, in my memory, a candidate. You know, you you and I have listened, and so many of these listeners have. We've all watched concession speeches where they say, "Hey, we, you know, we did our best, but we changed the message. We changed this election, and we made, you know, we had a real impact." And you roll your eyes because you know that that losing candidate had nothing to do with changing anything. Really, they just lost. Bernie Sanders changed a lot, and he, he changed really a does. lot about the way this party is going to approach the general election. I think that's going to bring and keep some of those young voters who will come around to the fact that Hillary Clinton is going to be better than the opposition. 888-653-7543, 888-6-LESLIE. We're going to take your calls for Michael right after this. I'm Igor Volsky, sitting in for Leslie Marshall. Quick break. Stay with us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE.
minutes after the hour of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress, filling in uh, for Leslie here at the beautiful studios at the Center for American Progress. And uh, joining me still here on the phone, Michael Shore. He's the former Al Jazeera America reporter. We're talking, of course, about the Democratic race uh, and what a well it's going to get a little messy uh, maybe before it gets all cleaned up but that of course it doesn't it doesn't even compare to what's going on on the republican side of the aisle where uh, who knows where things where things stand I, I'm, I'm trying michael to give a, a little bit of a kind of a summation of who's leading what's going on but i'm having some trouble because while donald trump is certainly uh, ahead in delegates, when you get to the convention in Cleveland in July, who knows what's going to happen? You have all these predictions that if he doesn't win the first ballot, then maybe it will be Ted Cruz on the second or third. You have the establishment getting together thinking maybe there's some magical white knight who can save us all. House Speaker Paul Ryan said he's not going to do it, so who is it going to be? Uh, I, uh, right? Help me. Yeah, well, I wish that I could help you. I wish, uh, I wish that uh, my network was still in business, and I and I could, you know, be booking my trip to Cleveland right now because it, it's it's going to be um, it's going to be an extraordinary thing. I, because even if Donald Trump gets the the delegates, the question is, will they all follow suit on either the first, uh, even the first roll? Um, and and nobody really knows that. I I think that the party itself and and people that I spoke with. Right before, you know, Al Jazeera went out of business last week, and right before they went out of business, I spoke with some people in the Republican Party about kind of where they were headed. And we were in one of these pieces we were doing, sort of a broad piece covering the Republican Party. They said it would be very hard for the rank and file to support anyone who didn't run for president, even if it was somebody who was kind of a white knight. And that would be how you'd look at Paul Ryan, and that's probably how Mitt Romney would want to position himself. I mean, it's so so hard to imagine that in a year where. Republican voters in particular have been uh, trying to really upset the establishment, uh, have been uh, turning against all of these candidates, all these governors with so much executive experience just because they've been in Washington or they've been in politics for a long time. To think that you're going to have some unelected party elders get together and select somebody I mean, my goodness, the Republican convention will blow up almost. Well, it may anyway, you know, and so many of them find the prospect of Donald Trump worth going, uh, you know, they think that Hillary Clinton's beatable. But you have to put yourself in in the head of a Republican going to... Okay, I'm in the head. I'm in the head. Talk to me. Okay, all right. (laughs) Just stay there for a second. I know it's it's, uh, it's not the the finest place to be for you. But you have to put yourself in their head. They see Hillary Clinton with these high negatives. If they can find someone out of that convention who doesn't have those kind of negatives and they see her as beatable, they're going to do whatever they can to get Hillary Clinton unelected. And I I think when it gets to that point, again, we we, we look at this from where we're sitting right now. It's April. So much is going to happen. We're going to know a lot more. We're going to know a lot about the posture of the Trump campaign, what this new guy Paul Manafort can do, who has orchestrated these things before, albeit 30 years ago, 40 years, 40 years ago now. It's like riding a bike. You know, I I think those are the things that we're going to have to look out for. 
and see how Republicans behave, because they're not going to behave en masse. They're going to be a couple of people who are going to push forward an idea, and some of them are going to follow. But, yeah, the, the notion right now that Donald Trump could be the nominee is enough for them to say, we'll do anything. A lot of them. All right, I'm going to leave the head of a Republican voter for this next question. I've stayed there way too long. (laughs) Thanks for coming. But how do you win an election as a Republican, given the changing demographics of America? I mean, we've seen the models. They've run the numbers. The only way you can win as a Donald Trump who only speaks to white voters is if you bring out more white voters than they did in 2000 when Bush got up selected or elected, and if you suppress actively this new coalition of voters of Hispanics and African Americans and the folks that Trump or whoever else or the Republican Party at large isn't going to appeal to. I mean, it feels to me like they, no matter who it is, given the brand of Trump and what that has unleashed, given the larger brand issues of the GOP as a whole, how mathematically they can win, to me, still remains a mystery, no matter who it is. I mean, am I being kind of too, you know, too predictive here? No, I don't think you are. I mean, I think you're making a great point. It's it's what's, what has made people kind of shrug their shoulders and wonder why uh, the, the Republicans have made immigration such a centerpiece of their entire primary process, and in fact, a lot of their legislative, Senate legislative process, it, it immediately alienates a number of voters. Now, I, I don't want to just cast Hispanic voters as only caring about immigration, because in, in point of fact, when polled, uh, consistently they've said jobs is number one. But if you're going after immigration, you're certainly pissing off voters that don't want to be pissed off, that you should be inviting under your tent, as it were. And and I, I think that's a big problem. I don't think they're wrong about anything you said. And I think a lot of the folks that are really upset, a lot of Democrats who are scared of the wild part of Donald Trump, that Donald Trump and any of these Republicans haven't had to face many Hispanics or many African-American voters in their primaries. Ten percent of of their uh, of their voters in New York even were, were minorities. So it's it's hard to imagine what their plan could be other than well suppression uh, and concentrated get out the vote. And getting out the vote is what they think is going to be the problem for Hillary Clinton. It's why they think this is so great. Of course, that Bernie Sanders is still bashing Hillary Clinton. This is where the damage can really be done. And if people stay home and don't vote for Hillary Clinton, a lot of those voters that do like her just don't come out. That's how they can win these Republicans. In it. And it's going to be very, a real challenge because they're not tapping into any of the new voters right now. They, they had an opportunity to. I, I got to say, Michael, what really ticked me off after New York is when Donald Trump came out and gave a short kind of more um, substantive speech than he has in contests past, that you saw all the pundits, everyone in the media, talk about how now he's a serious candidate. But I said, you know, the policies are the same very, very quickly. Do you see him as pivoting hard in the general if he's the nominee? Quickly, Michael. I think he's trying to make himself, quote-unquote, presidential. What that means, nobody knows. I do think that he's going to realize that he's got to be what he hasn't been as a Republican. He can't be as freewheeling when he's talking to Democrats as well and independent. That's going to be the big change for Donald Trump. Mm, 
big changes are coming, and we'll keep an eye on it all. Michael Schur, former Al Jazeera America reporter. Michael, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. I'm Igor Volsky, sitting in for Leslie Marshall, 888-653-7543, 888-6LESLIE, if you want to be part of the conversation. Quick break, and then we'll be back. Stay with us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. April 22nd, 888-653-7543, 888-6LESLIE, if you want to be part of the conversation. As we shift gears to uh, to really something that that is so upsetting and so disgusting and so gross and really just ridiculous that we here in 2016 have to be talking about it, but here we are uh, discussing HB2, that's the law in North Carolina, the hateful law that not only prevents transgender people from using public bathrooms, uh, but also prohibits uh, local uh, towns and cities from passing non-discrimination laws that include LGBT people. Yes, in 2016, this is where we are. This is what we're talking about all because of a law that was passed in 10 hours in North Carolina. There's been a lot of pressure. There's been a lot of heat on uh, the legislature there and the governor to change that measure, to repeal that measure. And joining me now in studio to discuss that progress is Sharita Gruberg. She's the senior policy analyst for LGBT issues here at uh, the Center for American Progress. Sharita, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Igor. Let's start uh, with something I, when, when I saw it, I, I just took to Twitter and I said, look, this, this is just so disgusting and so, so, so gross. So this morning, or was it yesterday or this morning, I don't remember anymore, that Donald Trump said that he is also against HB2, that he doesn't think that transgender people should be using a bathroom that they really have no business of being in, frankly. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz was outraged, responded that, well, I guess uh, Donald Trump is part of the PC police, that this law, making the, the argument that conservatives make about it, that it's just common sense, that it's about privacy, that it's about protecting, um, you know, your, your daughters and your wife, um, and has put out this morning, has put out an ad. Now, you'd think when you see this ad that it's from a PAC supporting Ted Cruz, that it's from some outside group, but it's actually from Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. which has images of people in bathrooms and claims that what D- Donald Trump wants to do, what progressives who have been fighting against this law want to do, is allow people who, quote-unquote, look like women or pretend to be women to go into the bathrooms with women. I mean... Just disgusting, gross, vile stuff. Right, it totally is. I have no question. I just oh. to, I just wanted to vent. 
to vent the frustration. It is. And I'm going to quote Reverend Barber from the NAACP in North Carolina. He had a press conference today and he put it perfectly. This isn't about common sense. This bill is nonsense. Um, it doesn't protect anyone. It makes up a problem where there isn't one. And it's targeting a really vulnerable population and putting them more at risk of abuse. A suicide hotline for trans um, teens in North Carolina reported that they have double the number of people calling for assistance now than before the bill. And we don't have any instances of any trans people misusing bathrooms or using them for anything other than to just do the same thing you and I do in the bathroom. 888-653-7543. I should give the whole number, Igor, the whole number. 888-653-7543. 888-6-LESLIE. The other, I mean, un, un just uh, crazy thing about this law is that what they would then have, transgender people who identify as women or men and look uh, as a woman or a man, go into the bathroom of the opposite sex, right? That's what they are calling for. It just, it makes no sense. And I think there, I mean, it was passed in from conceiving of it to passing it in this emergency session, you were saying it was like eight, 10 hours they didn't think about what the implications would be, what you would actually have to do to implement something this invasive. Like, are they going to have bathroom monitors now that they're going to have to pay for? It's just completely impractical, in addition to being discriminatory against people who we're recognizing have the same rights to access the bathroom as anyone else. We have, you know, we have got about 200 cities around the country have already passed protections for LGBT people, including for trans people to access the bathrooms where they feel more most comfortable in. Um, we have states all over the country. Unfortunately, we still have 28 states that don't have these protections. But what North Carolina did criminalizing people for going to the bathroom is unprecedented. No one else has gone this far. Let's go to the phones. Reggie from Georgia, line one. You're on with Sharita Gruberg, senior policy analyst for LGBT issues. Good afternoon. How you doing, sir? And how, how's your guest doing, by the way? Happy Friday to you both. We're both Thank we're both good, all. Reggie. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, what do you, how do you react or respond or say to people like her, such as Dana Lowe's, when she from the Blaze TV made a parody skit mocking transgender people going to use public restrooms? You know, i.e. the bathroom predator myth. Yeah, how do how do, how do you people? respond? How do you respond to this kind of onslaught that we've seen mm-hmm. of conservatives really mocking this issue and saying that this is about a man in a dress going into the bathroom and making people and showing his penis to people? I guess is is the do if you take it to the next step there. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how do you respond to something like that? Um, I, I mean, we try education where. Uh, policy group we tried data there's no examples of this ever happening and you know we already have laws on the books that you can't use a public restroom for assaulting someone or for you know taking no matter who you are no matter who you are it doesn't matter what gender you are what bathroom you're going into you can't misuse the bathrooms those laws are on the books they're working you don't need this additional law targeting trans people and preventing them from using the restrooms that they need to to do something as basic as going to the bathroom. 
our colleague Sarah McBride, who is a 25-year-old transgender woman, uh, recently found herself in North Carolina working on a project uh, for the center here uh, and went into the women's bathroom and took a picture of herself there and said, there you go. Right. And and then what happened? Um, so, yeah, I mean, Sarah works on my team and is just an amazing advocate, a brilliant woman. And she was in the state doing interviews um, for research and interviewed a Charlotte City Council member and needed to use the restroom in the government facility. And under HB2, if she... What she did was illegal. Um, and she would, under HB two, she would have to go into the men's room. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Right. To use the facility there. Right. And so to demonstrate the absurdity of this, she took a picture of herself in the bathroom, and posted it to Instagram and Facebook. And it was just a plea for common sense and to be treated like a human being and to have her dignity and her personhood recognized. And this to me is, I just, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. this to me is the kind of kick-ass activism mm-hmm. that really changes minds. You're showing people how absurd and crazy this entire notion is. This isn't some conversation. And this is what I hate too about how the media cover these stories is you presume that there's equal weight to the other side, right. that that they really have an argument when they say that it's about privacy for women, bull crap it is. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the kind of thing that transgender people should be doing all over the country, saying, is this what you want? Look how this makes no sense. Oh, yeah. There was another, um, there's a trans man in North Carolina who printed out these cards that he, um, because under the law, he would have to use a women's bathroom because that's what's on his birth certificate. And so he had these cards saying, like, you know, I don't want to be here either. You don't want me here. Talk to your elected representatives about this. It's not my choice. They're trying to force me to use the women's room, even though I'm a man. 888-653-7543, 888-6-LESLIE. Sherita Gruberg is a senior policy analyst for LGBT issues here at the Center for American Progress. I'm Igor Volsky, also of the Center for American Progress, filling in for Leslie Marshall. We're going to take a quick break. Your calls, more on this disgusting issue. I want to hear your outrage. I want to hear that you're pissed off about this. Give us a call. We'll talk about it right after this. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Twenty-seven minutes after the hour, of the Leslie Marshall Show. As we close up uh, this Friday edition, I started out so calm, just so <laughs> mellow uh, on this program, right, Alex? And I here I am, just angry, outraged because this this topic, this issue, I don't understand again how in 2016 we as a country are still debating and discussing the basic fundamental human rights of all people. How is that possible? Sharita Gruberg, she's a senior policy analyst for LGBT issues, kind enough to join me on this Friday afternoon here at the CAP studios. The real pushback that we've seen after this bill became a law in 10 hours 
is from business groups, Mm -hmm. large businesses in the state who have said, we are not subjecting our employees to this kind of garbage, that we have laws on the books as businesses, policies as businesses that directly contradict uh, this kind of treatment that you're perpetuating. And they've, uh, over 100 businesses have lined up and have tried to pressure the governor, the legislature, when it comes back into session, to change the law. Now, you have done an analysis of the economic consequences, the impacts that North Carolina could face if, in fact, um, this law remains in the books. Right. Uh, Yeah, we're talking about so far with the companies that have said that they're going to pull jobs, um, stop expansion. All the threats that have made up to date, not looking forward about, you know, we're still waiting on the NBA to decide uh, whether they're going to keep the all-star game there in Charlotte. Um, But so far, we're talking about half a billion dollars. Half a billion dollars. With a B. Yeah. Half a billion dollars at stake. Deutsche Bank said that they're not going to expand operations. PayPal is um, ending a project which would have made 400 jobs. Ironically, the bill's author uses PayPal to raise money for his reelection Isn't campaign. So? Um, and also, there's even more money at stake in Title IX funding. So we had this case in Virginia where the Fourth Circuit said that you can't prevent a kid from using the bathroom that corresponds to their gender identity. That's a violation of t- sex discrimination under Title IX. Uh, there's about $4.3 billion of Title IX funding in North Carolina that, you know, DOD um, that the Department of Education, DOJ, could end because of HB2. And so the question is, how much money is the General Assembly and the governor willing to lose over this? Now, we've seen, I believe, a Democrat who voted for the bill change his mind and say, mm-hmm. mm, I was wrong. What other, that's how he said it too, what other kind of impact have we seen from this kind of activism? I mean, it, I don't think anybody's saying that when these uh, lawmakers come back that they are going to repeal it, but at least are we seeing more minds changed as a result? Um, I'm hoping. Uh So Pat McCrory, after the Fourth Circuit decision, the governor said that he was going to consult with his lawyers to see what he had to do to comply. Uh, So that's at least some movement. Also, somebody snapped a picture of his face when he heard the news of the Fourth Circuit decision. And it was definitely like, I have made a huge mistake kind of face. (laughs) It was priceless. Uh, So hopefully he's going to take a long, hard look at, you know, is it worth sacrificing 14 years of being a moderate conservative or in painting himself as this reasonable leader of the state, just wasting all of that over this bill. Let's get a bit into the question of why. Why (laughs) is this happening? Outside of kind of the, we can't understand how this operates and the exasperation that I've expressed I don't remember, and maybe I'm wrong here, I don't remember these kinds of measures before marriage equality became Mm -hmm. the law of the land, that Supreme Court ruling last year. It really felt like after the marriage question was decided that you saw conservatives take to the states and go state by state pushing these kinds of measures, but also all kinds of freedom to discriminate bills. If you're religious, you don't have to, you know, provide certain services to the LGBT community. 
Is this, do you see, because to me it's always been now that these organizations that have fueled themselves for years by opposing marriage equality, now they need a new goal, now they need a new target. And so this is what they're saying to their supporters, give us money. You can't give us money to fight marriage, but give us money to do this kind of garbage. I think that's 100% true. And they're, I mean, they're still trying to fight marriage. That's what you see with all these uh, so-called religious liberty bills being passed. Um, we see it in Indiana. We see it in uh, Tennessee, in um, Arkansas, in Georgia. There's all these bills coming up in the state legislature trying to preserve some kind of mythical right of people to discriminate. Uh, bills to still allow people to not recognize lawful marriages, be it, you know, bakers or photographers or, um, you know, people who work for groups that have some kind of faith-based connection to still be allowed to not recognize a constitutional right uh, that we've seen in the Supreme Court's already decided. It's a settled case, settled law. But we're still seeing people fighting to hold on to that ability to discriminate against same-sex couples and now more and more against trans people. Uh, I think it's it's definitely become a polarizing issue, even within the Re- Republican Party. You brought up Trump v. Cruz. We're seeing the business interests and the um, kind of business side, less regulation Republicans against the conservative values Republicans who don't care how invasive the government gets in this. They they want to make sure that they're policing bathrooms, poli- policing relationships. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and who wins that battle in the Republican Party. But it's hard to imagine that conservative Republicans are going to win their power back. It almost feels like, you know, they're hanging on with their fingers on that cliff, with their fingernails just digging in to a certain worldview, mm-hmm. to a certain concept of America that because of the, the progress and the changes we've seen just isn't there anymore. Even this, even though you have, I think the number is something like 200 bills introduced of all variety in the past year that are anti-LGBT, mm-hmm. even that doesn't create the kind of in lockstep opposition that you saw to marriage, you know, in 2004, uh, 2005, 2000s, before you really kind of saw the big wave take over, certainly in the Democratic Party, where Democrats Mm -hmm. said, okay, okay, all right, we're there, finally. It feels like they can try and they can fight and they can come with 30,000 iterations of this garbage, but at the end of the day, they're going to lose this war. They might win a few battles, but they're going to lose the war. Well, because people have changed. I mean, the majority of North Carolina voters don't support this. Um, yeah, how does it pull in North Carolina, this law? Poorly. Uh, so Roy Cooper, who was the Democrat running against Pat McCrory for governor in 2016, for the first time after this bill was passed when they polled, he's beating McCrory in the polls now. Oh. Um, so, And it's North Carolina. We might get a Democrat governor in North Carolina. Mm. Like, let that sink in. That's how much voters don't want this. Um, And we're seeing, you know, some other states have proposed similar bills, and they've been vetoed. So South Dakota or North Dakota, North or South. I'm sorry for people in the Dakotas. I really apologize. Um, 
but the governor vetoed a bill that would have prevented you know trans kids from going to the bathroom there too. Uh, so we have these really extremist views persisting, but I think public opinion is going the other way and eventually they're going to have to accept that this is where the country is right now and we are trying to expand opportunities expand protections not discriminate against people do you think that the activism that's around hb2 now the kind of laser-like focus the fact that it's now part of the republican debate part of the conversation is that going to push other states to take a second look if they're considering these bills as they move move through the legislature and say oh we don't we don't want that we don't want these kinds of half a billion dollars in economic consequence oh it already happened it happened in georgia it happened in tennessee um People are taking notice. Uh, Governors are taking notice. State legislatures are taking notice. And I think, uh, you know, North Carolina was the first state to enact such an extreme piece of legislation. And it may very well be the last one to succeed because it's, you know, half a billion dollars is a lot of money to lose it's a huge price to pay for the ability to discriminate against people. Yeah, no win. No yeah. win here for them at all. Sharita Gruberg, she's the senior policy analyst for LGBT issues here at the Center for American Progress. I'm Igor Volsky, the deputy director of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being with us on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'll be back here on Monday talking about all the news and politics you can stomach. Until then, have a good weekend, okay? And I'll see you then. Bye-bye.